chapter 40, verses 25 and 26. To whom, then, will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Uh, so good morning again. Um, today we're continuing uh, in, our, in this new series that we launched last week, this new series called Four Liberating Truths. Uh, Four Liberating Truths, and basically what we're doing is we are, we're opening God's Word together um, over the course of four weeks, uh, and we're, we're sort of unpacking these, these four different foundational and liberating truths that we should be preaching to ourselves, gospel truths that we should be preaching to ourselves, to our own hearts. And see, the big idea is that like we, we all need to be preaching gospel truth to ourselves. We all need to be preaching gospel truth to ourselves because beneath our brokenness, beneath our brokenness, beneath all of our sinful behavior, beneath all of our negative emotions that that come up, beneath all of that is, is, is usually a lie, a lie that we're believing either about God or about who we are before God. And so, for example, like what we talked about last week is that, um, like, if my life feels out of control, and I'm, if I'm just listening to my feelings rather than preaching truth to myself, then when my life feels out of control, then I'll conclude that, that God must not be in control, and therefore I should worry or I should, I should be anxious, right? And so, like, if you're thinking, like, well, of course, like, I know that God is in control, right? Like, I'm someone who knows that God is in control, but, but look, like, it's, it's one thing to intellectually believe a truth about God, but it's something else to actually, like, functionally believe a truth about God. Where you functionally believe it, that means you are actually willing to, like, bank on it. And so our job is to determine what are those lies that we're believing and what are the truths from the scriptures that we need to turn to. What are the lies that we tend to believe and what are the truths that we need to turn to, the truths that we need to be preaching to ourselves. And so again, I said this last week, but by way of preface, like it's really important for me to say that these four liberating truths that we're, we're preaching through, they're actually from, from a book that I'm reading called You Can Change by an English pastor named Tim Chester. Uh, he's in the Acts 29 church planning network that's supporting our, our, our work here. And these are biblical truths. Like he got them from the Bible. He didn't just make them up out of nowhere. He got them from the Bible, but he's the one who created this grid, who kind of broke it down for us and created this this helpful grid like I'm not smart enough to come up with these these are his right and so but these have been so instrumental like in my own life uh, in my own marriage and our prayer is that it'll be super helpful for you guys too and so so last week we looked at our first liberating truth which is that God is great and so I don't have to be in control you guys remember that that's what we talked about last week and so this week we're going to turn to our next liberating truth here's the next liberating truth for us this morning God is glorious so I don't have to fear others or seek their approval. 
God is glorious, and so therefore I don't have to fear others or to seek their approval. Now I've got three points to hit this morning. Um, drummer next door has a lot of points to hit this morning. But um, for me, we've got three points we want to hit this morning. Uh, first, what does it mean to fear others? What does it mean to fear man? Secondly, what does that actually tend to look like in our own lives? How does that flesh itself out? And then lastly, like, why do we do it? Why do we do that, and what's the solution? So first, what does it mean to fear others? Here's a simple definition of the fear of man. The fear of man is basically when we replace God with people. We replace God with people. Instead of considering God is the one who has glory and power over us, we give people glory and power over us, over our hearts. You following? That's what the fear of man is. It's when instead of considering God is the one who rightfully has glory and power over us, we give people glory and power over us, like, like in our hearts. That's what we're doing when we fear man. It's when we seek the approval of others over and above the approval of God. It's when we crave approval so much that we're just controlled by it where it starts to dictate our thoughts, our emotions, our behavior. Like psychologically, we know we all really kind of peek at this in high school, right? Maybe junior high, but for sure in high school. Like that was me, okay? Like when I was in high school, my common idol, the one thing I worshipped was the approval of others. I wanted to be on the in crowd, right? Like what high schooler doesn't want that? I went from my freshman year from like kind of this R&B vibe to like this break dancer to like this puka shell wearing Hawaiian thing going on to, to like skater punk rocker by my senior year, like all within the span of four years. I was like desperately, I want to be in this in crowd. I want to be in that in crowd. This one year, I remember in high school, I remember one year I wanted a pager so badly. I wanted a pager. I know that sounds super lame right now, but these things were cool at the time. These were so cool. Like, like I mean, I'd probably just dated myself, right? But, um, but like, they were so cool at the time. Like, these days, like, I carry around, like, we all carry around in our, these mini computers with internet access in our pockets, right, on our phones. But back in the 90s, like, pagers were where it was at. Like, if you had a pager, you're in. This little black box with a green light on top, right, green screen. Like, if you had that, you're on the in crowd. I remember losing my mind because, like, my parents would not let me spend my own money to get a pager that I wanted. My friends started getting pagers. I was the only one who didn't have one. My parents were like, no, you don't need a pager, right? Only drug dealers have pagers. I'm like, no, all the cool kids have pagers, right? And I was livid because I wanted to be on that in crowd. And I know you're listening to this. You're probably thinking like, man, my pastor is like super pathetic. And, and to that, I would say, like, you're, you're totally right. <laughs> but see, that's what the Bible calls the fear of man. That's what the fear of man is. Proverbs 29 says, The fear of man lays a snare. Lays a snare. Solomon calls it a snare. Why? Because few things in this world can get a firmer grip on our hearts than the fear of man. 
Few things can get such a strong, firm grip on our hearts in the fear of man. That's why Solomon says that it's a snare. See, it first peeks its head into our hearts when we're kids, when we crave the approval of all the other kids, but, but it never goes away. This fear never goes away. As Ed Welch, he's a biblical counselor on the East Coast, he points out that in high school, we just call the fear of man, we call it peer pressure. But when we get older, we just call it people-pleasing or codependency or in business, they call it enmeshment, right? Like it's all the same thing, though. It's all the same thing. The fear of man is basically when we ascribe glory, when we ascribe power to other people, when we fear their disapproval more than we fear the disapproval of God. You see, even as adults, even as grown-ups, like, we, we, we struggle with this fear. This is why, like, a lot of us, we, f- we fear gaining a few extra pounds, right? Like, health is hardly ever what motivates that drive, Health is hardly what, usually not the true motivating drive. The real issue is usually like, man, what are all these people that know me going to think about me? What are they going to think about me? There's a reason that public speaking always tops the list of the most common fears over and above the fear of death. Like, people are more afraid of public speaking than they are about dying, right? Like, look, I don't care if you send me to the gallows to get hung. Just don't make me talk to the crowd when we get there, right? It's ridiculous, right? But... That's what the fear of man does. It's a snare. It has a firm grip on the human heart. I want to turn your attention to a passage in John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, Jesus is he's teaching, he's with this group of people and he's teaching them, right? He's teaching them. They're astonished at his teaching. This is a large group of people. Some of them are are his followers, a whole group of them are just curious, who's this Jesus guy causing a ruckus around town? And like some of his haters, the Pharisees are there too, right? But a number of the people in that middle group, as he's teaching, they get saved. They get saved for the first time. They come to believe in him. They're seeing his signs and his wonders that he's performing. They're seeing his miracles. They're hearing him him teach. And they're astonished. And the Spirit of God is opening up the eyes of their their hearts. and, And they see, man, this man is the Son of God. The Spirit of God opened their eyes to see that this man is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. And in this group of people, they get saved. Now look at what it says of these people that got saved in verse 42. John 12, 42 says, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities that believed in him, believed in him for the first time, uh, but for the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And see, so here's what's happening. Like the the Pharisees, you guys know who the Pharisees are? Like the Pharisees, these are the self-righteous religious people who are Jesus's like primary haters. They're his primary enemies. They're like sting, right? Like every step that Jesus makes, like he, they're watching him, right? 
Every step he makes, these are the guys that are searching for reasons, always searching for reasons to get him arrested, thrown into jail, and then sent off to get slaughtered on, on a cross. And Jesus was preaching this gospel of amazing grace that made all of their like religious works look just kind of silly. And so they hated him for it. That's who the Pharisees were. Now Jesus is among them. He's in front of the Pharisees preaching to a crowd of people over here. And some of those people are getting saved. They're getting saved left and right. And they're afraid to say anything about their new salvation because because they thought, well, if if these Pharisees find out that we get saved, then we're going to get kicked out of the synagogue. It's kind of like being a Trojans fan at a Bruins game, right? Like the second that your team allegiance is found out that you're revealed, like you're going to get booted out of there, right? There's no way. And so in the same way, followers of Jesus, it says even some of the authorities in the village, like they became followers of Jesus. And so even the authorities who became followers of Jesus, they, even they would get shunned by these religious leaders, by the Pharisees, and get kicked out of the synagogue. And so sadly, a lot of them, it says in this text, a lot of them, they don't confess their faith. They don't confess their faith because they, they pretend to side instead with Jesus' haters over here because they feared the disapproval of men more than they feared the disapproval of God. Or in John's words, he says in verse 43, um, they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now, when we read a verse like that, like we should be shocked, Right? What do you mean? Like, they love the glory that comes from man, from created man, more than the glory that comes from creator God? Like, the fact that anyone would actually choose man's glory over God's glory should should shock us. That should appall us. But that's what they did. That's what they did because they had this deeper concern, this deeper, weightier concern of what others would think of them rather than what God thinks. That's the fear of man. That's the fear of man. It's when you're more controlled by the fear of rejection than you are by the glory of God's greatness and his approval of you through your faith in Jesus Christ. You see, it's when you desire to be respected, esteemed, admired, included, and at the same time, you're afraid of being overlooked. You're afraid of being neglected to the point where it just like takes over you, right? That desire, like that's what the fear of man is. Now to some extent, like these desires can be legitimate. These desires can be legitimate. Tim Chester, the author of You Can Change, he makes this point in his book when he says, we elevate desires that are often good in themselves. Desires that are often good in themselves, like a desire for love, for affirmation, for respect, We elevate these desires to the level of needs without which we think we cannot be whole. We talk of needing the approval or the acceptance of others, but our true need is to glorify God and love people. That's what we prayed about this morning, right? See, in other words, what he's saying here is that it's it's not an inherently bad thing to, to want people to like you. It's not an inherently bad thing to like want other people to, to like you, but if you need that approval, if you need it and you crave it so much that if you don't have it, 
that you just don't know what to do with yourself. You don't know how to make sense of your value or your identity in this world unless, you know, this person or that person thinks highly of you or accepts you. If that's the lie that you're believing, then you're not thinking that God is the truly glorious one. And see, so that's why we need a bigger view of how glorious God is, of how holy he is. We need a bigger view of his approval of us in Jesus Christ. See, the only identity-forming approval that should matter to the Christian isn't the approval of others, but the approval that we have before God in Jesus Christ. I'll say that again. The only identity-forming approval that should matter to the Christian is the approval that we have in Jesus Christ. That's it. As Paul says in Romans, if God is for us, then who can be against us? Second point, what does this look like in our lives? What does this tend to look like? How does this flesh itself out in our lives? What does it look like when we're, when we're functionally believing that because God is glorious, we don't have to fear others. So it's more than an intellectual belief. It's an actual functional belief. What does it look like when we're not functionally believing that? I'll go run through a a few examples. Maybe you just, you easily surrender to peer pressure, right? Maybe you easily surrender to peer pressure like high school Chris, right? Like, you laugh at the wrong jokes. You'll be okay trash-talking about your friend or your family neighbor or your family member or your neighbor behind their back because you, you just want to fit in, right? You'll lie to make yourself look better on a resume or when you're telling a story to your friends, right? Like, there's that famous adage that um, especially rings true in Orange County where everyone's trying to keep up with their neighbors uh, that says, you know, you spend money on things you don't need and that you can't afford just to impress people like you don't even know or like, right? Like, that's easily surrendering to, to peer pressure. We do that as adults, too. Or maybe, maybe it's that you avoid healthy confrontation because you just want to be liked, right? That's when you're unwilling to call out a friend who's making poor or unhealthy or sinful choices because you don't want them to get mad at you, even though your silence will eventually hurt them more down down the road, right? Like, this reminds me of, like, the first few episodes of American Idol every season, right? I know it's not around anymore, but first few episodes of American Idol are brutal, right? You got some people up there who are, like, super passionate about something they're, like, super bad at, right? And you know what would solve that? It's just one good friend, Willing to tell the truth. Let's be honest. Just one good friend. Like, we watch these people singing, and they're, like, off-key. And I'm just thinking, like, man, that's just a really hard conversation that no one was willing to have, right? They really didn't have a friend who loved them enough just to tell them the truth. Like, singing's not your thing, right? Like, you probably shouldn't go there. No one loved them enough to tell them that, so now Simon's going to do it on national television. Maybe, maybe it's that. The way that fear of man fleshes itself out in your life is that you make excuses. 
You make excuses for your own mistakes. You don't take responsibility for them. And the reason that's a fear of man is because you find yourself where you justify your bad behavior or you shift blame on someone else, on your circumstances or on your spouse or someone else because you just can't handle the thought of being seen as a failure. You can't handle the thought of acknowledging, like, I dropped the ball. I messed up. I'm not put together. I'm someone who doesn't have it all together. Like, I run to this one all the time in my marriage. I blame my bad attitude on my bad circumstances, like, all the time. Maybe the way it fleshes itself out for you is that you, you, your fear of man has, like, these religious undertones, you're like the Pharisees where you care more about how righteous you appear before other like churchy people than, than you do about um, how the, like, the true condition of your heart, where you're concerned more about how self-righteous you are than you, than you do in trusting in the righteousness of Christ for you. Maybe you fear sharing your faith with those who are not a part of God's family. Maybe you're overly concerned about your appearance, the way that you look, the way that you're dressed. Maybe you feel underappreciated all the time. Like not only do you need others to notice you, but you need their applause. You need their affirmation. You're not, you won't, you'll, you'll keep yourself from doing good things, things that God has called you to do because you're, you're, you, you need that approval. You need that affirmation from people. See, if you do any of these things, and the list could go on, couldn't it? But if you do any of these things, and what you're doing is you're defining yourself, your value, your identity, the very center of like who you are. If you do any of these things, what you're doing is you're defining yourself by another person. That's the fear of man. You're enslaved to the opinions of others. That's why it's called a snare, because it, 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 it traps us. Like, a couple weeks ago, we, we had this, uh, like, had a bunch of guys over, some friends, and we were, we were sitting in, in our backyard, um, smoking cigars, having a good time, just talking about life, right? And as we were sitting back there, we saw this rat, like, run across our back fence. And we're like, oh, my gosh, like, did you see that rat? And then, like... 20 seconds later, we see another rat run by. And we're like, oh my gosh, there, there's another one. And then like, after, when it happened like three times, I'm like, all right, this is disgusting. <laughs> like, like, this is like the border of my property. And there's like these rats, like, how, like we hardly ever go in the backyard, like especially at night. And so, and so this was like a surprise to me. I was like, does this happen like every night, <laughs> right? And so we're disgusted. And I'm like, man, where are these rats coming from? Like, Philip Lewis over there, our, our neighbor, he, he was over, and he's like, oh, I got a rat trap at my house, right? And so he runs across the street, grabs this rat trap, and we set it up, like, right there on the middle, of, on, on top of the back fence. And we're just like, okay, this happened, like, three times within the last, like, 20 minutes. Like, we're bound to watch. And so we're just like, like, we all turn our chairs, like, towards this thing, just, like, waiting for this rat to get trapped. And then all of a sudden, like, we hear this rustling, and, you know, the light are shining so you can see this like rat like running towards it and we're going to, to the trap and all the guys are on the edge of their seat and they're like oh, oh and the rat like screeches to a stop and then goes the other way and we're like oh right and my point is 
Man, even the rat knows to avoid a snare, right? (laughs) Even the rat knows to avoid a trap. He's like, I've been down this road before. I've seen what happened to my buddies. Like, I'm not walking over there. I'm not going to touch that. But we do this all the time with the fear of man. We put too much stock in the opinion of others. They can't handle the weight of that. It always ends up disappointing us. And yet we do it again and again and again. So now why do we do it? This is our third and last point. Why do we do it? Why do we crave so much the approval of others? Why do we fear others give them (coughs) glory and power over us? Why do even the most godly among us fall into the snare of the fear of man again and again and again? Like, is there something deeper going on here? I think there is. The Bible tells us that we were made for glory. In the first pages of scriptures, the Bible says that we as God's creatures made in his image, human beings were made for glory. We were made to behold God's glory. We were made to hunger for glory. Like that's what we're after when we fear man. You see, we want to see glory. We want to taste it. We want to reflect it. We want to feel significance and approval. We thirst for it and we hunger for it because we were made for it. It's the natural desire of the human heart because we were wired to feel what C.S. Lewis calls the weight of glory. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, they had it. They had this glory. See, the Bible says that we, all humans, are made in God's image. Look at Genesis 1.26 with me. It says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, this is God saying, make man in our image after our likeness. The our there is the one triune God, Father, Son, Spirit. God is saying, let us make man in our image. Now, what does it mean to be made in God's image? If you read the rest of the context, you'll see that basically what it means to be made in God's image is that uh, our minds and our wills are uniquely made more than any other creature. Our minds and wills are uniquely made more than any other creature to know and to make known the glory of God. What does it mean to be made in God's image? It's that it means that our minds and our wills are uniquely made to know and to make known the glory of God. You see, God made us in this way. He made us in this way, in his image. And when he formed our first parents, he called it good. And they had the glory, the affirmation, the approval of God that we were created for. So if that's the case, then why are we so screwed up, right? Because, and the reason is, what happens in Genesis 3? In Genesis 3, when when our first parents were were tempted by sin, and they tragically came to believe that God-giving glory was not enough, they wanted to have glory apart from God, apart from the glorious Father. But it doesn't work like that, right? It doesn't work like that because there are no such things as independent creatures, You can't be an independent creature. A creature, a created thing that is independent, finds its glory, its significance 
its identity apart from the creator, right? It just doesn't make sense. You can't have a truly independent creature. Reform, or, or, or Herman Bovink, the reformed theologian, he points out that that would be an oxymoron, right? That would be an oxymoron. You can't be an independent creature. You see, but that right there, when they lost sight of glory in Genesis 3, like that right there is our situation today. It's our situation today, and we've been craving glory ever since. All throughout history, it's the human condition. You see, we are born sinners who were intended, created for glory. We were created for glory to behold God's glory and to reflect it to the world. But we lost it because of sin. And that's why we're addicted to the glory of man. Because we're, we're searching for ways, we're searching for glory to cover our sin. We're searching for glory to cover our shame and our brokenness. We're trying to gain that glory back when we say, look, if I just win the approval of this person, if I just win the approval of others, then I'll get a sense of that glory back. I remember a couple years ago, um, I was reading this article about this Australian uh, teenage girl named Asena O'Neill. She was 18 at the time, um, but she made headlines, this Australian teenager, she made headlines globally because she posted this, this video on YouTube saying she was renouncing social media and calling it quits, which you're like... Big deal, right? How does that make global headlines? But the reason that this was a big deal is that over the course of just two years, from the time that she was 16, over the course of two years, this 16-year-old, Asena, gained half a million followers on Instagram. She wasn't a celebrity before this, just, just from like doing the Instagram game, right? She gained over half a million followers on Instagram, half a million subscribers on YouTube, and 60,000 average views for every Snapchat. Now, if you don't understand what that means, like in social media terms, this is like celebrity status, right? For a teenage girl in Australia, this is celebrity status. This fame she gained of posting these artsy pictures of herself, like gained her the attention of advertisers and sponsors to eventually she was making money. She, like, she, was, she was paid a full-time salary able to support herself at, as a teenager over less than two years. And she started getting invitations from all across the globe, from L.A., from San Francisco, from New York, for a modeling career. And so two years in, she just gets to this point where she's, she's over it. She's burned out. And at 18 years old, she deletes all the apps, and she's talking about it in this YouTube video. She writes an article about it that BuzzFeed posted, and she says, I became addicted to being liked. I became addicted to being liked. I had the dream life. I was surrounded by all this wealth and all this fame and all this power, and yet they were all miserable. They all made me miserable. And I had never been more miserable. 
She says she was lost. She was lonely. She was miserable. And at the end of this video, she's like, you know, I'm getting all these modeling jobs and everything. But at the end of the day, she's, her, her one thing that she closes the video with is she's like, at the end of the day, it's just, it's totally stupid. 18 years old, and her eyes are open enough to recognize this is stupid. I'm losing myself. This is stupid. And her point is not that social media is stupid. Like, that's not the point I'm trying to make. That's not the point she's trying to make. I mean, she makes her announcement through social media, right? Like, her point is not that social media is stupid. What she's saying is that this obsession with your own image, the obsession with your reputation, the obsession with up votes and likes and views, that's what's totally stupid. To where you're so obsessed with it that it totally grips and determines your thoughts, your emotions, your behavior. It erodes the soul. 18 years old, she realized, I'm losing my soul. I'm losing my soul to get the approval of people I don't even know. At such a young age, she understood that we all want to count for something. And so we turn to other people. We glorify them. We give them glory and power over us. If I could just have their approval, then everything will feel right in the world. And she realized that's a lie. See, the Bible says in 1 Peter that all flesh, all humanity, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass what happens to the grass the grass withers the flower falls but the word of the lord remains forever see the word of god the word of the lord which preserved the record of who god is what he's done the record of his glory and his power and wonder that's what stands forever all flesh all men will will their glory will wither and fade peter says but the glory of God, the record of his glory, that's what stands forever. Everything else fades. All men fade. And see, that's the sadness and the fear of man. That's the sorrow in it that Asena O'Neill became wise to. We are broken people asking, begging, looking to other broken people to make ourselves feel significant. We want to taste glory, and so we, we look for it in finite people. But finite people don't hold the kind of glory that never fades. Broken people cannot make broken people whole right? Broken people cannot make broken people whole. If you look to broken people to heal your own brokenness, then you're driving down this dead-end street. You're looking to them to provide something that they themselves lack. They don't hold that kind of glory, and yet you're giving it to them. So what hope do we have? What do we do from here? What hope do we have? How do we get liberated from the fear of man? 
How do we get liberated from the fear of man? We have two options. One is self-esteem, right? That's what the culture would tell us. Self-esteem. You think much of yourself, then those things won't matter, right? You don't need those people who reject you. Don't listen to those haters, right? Haters are going to hate. Don't listen to them. And like, look, I'm, I'm, I'm with that. Like, I, I get that. That's actually true. That, like, that's a good posture to have. But self-esteem alone isn't truly going to free us from the snare because you're still identifying yourself in relation to others. Some, uh, like sometime last year when I was going through my um, church planting leadership residency, I was sitting in this circle. There's like eight of us church planters, and there was a few coaches that were um, uh, we were meeting for the first time. And one of the first questions they asked all of us is to tell us some story of, of, of leadership that has like harmed us, right? And like surprisingly, like the majority of the guys in this circle, like we had stories like that. And I told this story about how, how me and Alyssa, like years ago, like there was, there was a leader in ministry who had just like hurt us and, and burned us and like wounded us badly. This, I left this meeting I had with this leader like years ago in tears. Like I was bawling. Like I'm not much of a crier. There's like few things that will, will make me cry. Like my daughter and my wife are like two of them, right? But like, like th- th- this man had so mistreated my wife and I and some of our close friends that, that I was just like bawling when I, when I left this meeting. And, and in this leadership cohort last year, they, they asked me, so they said, so now, Chris, what did you learn from that situation? Like, how is that going to affect and impact your leadership from this point forward? And without skipping a beat, I said, I never want to make anybody who's under my care, under my leadership, feel the way that he made me feel that day. I never want to do that. And I felt good about saying that. And at lunch after, one of the coaches spoke directly to a few of us. And he said, especially for you, Chris, he's like, you need to know that like, like whatever baggage, whatever hurt, whatever wounds that you're carrying into your leadership, he's like, you need to leave that behind. He's like, because you don't, you don't want to lead this church. You don't want to lead this church plant with anti-vision. You want to lead it with positive vision. You don't want what's driving your leadership to be, I'm not going to be that guy. You want what's driving your leadership to be, I want to be more like Jesus, right? I want to be formed by the scriptures. I want a chief concern for God's glory. And let that be what motivates me, what pushes me. He says, otherwise, he's like, you're still letting that guy control you. He's like, you gotta, he's like, you got you gotta you gotta rid yourself of that, he called it that snare. You see, self-esteem isn't enough because it doesn't truly free us from the snare because we're still identifying ourselves in relation to other people. The other option that we have is what we can call God esteem. To where we're not ultimately esteeming in ourself and our ability to rise above our enemies, but we're esteeming primarily in God. That's our other option. It's where we're beholding the glory of God and we're esteeming Him, not ourselves. We're esteeming Him. Isaiah 40, verse 25 in the CSB, God is speaking and He says, 
To whom will you compare me, or who is my equal? To whom will you compare me, or who is my equal? You see, there's a glory and power in God that just doesn't compare. Doesn't compare to any other man, to any created thing, to any created person. Like... Just think of the brilliance of the sun. We were reminded that of that just this last week, right? When everyone's like, don't look at the eclipse, right? Don't look at the sun. You're going to go blind, right? And we're reminded what we take for granted, which is that, man, the sun is powerful, right? What do you mean I can go blind? The sun is powerful. I mean, think about its brilliance, this burning hot lava that lights up every planet and moon in our solar system. Its bulb never goes out, never has to be changed. God's glory, it says in Isaiah and Revelation, is like the sun times an infinite number. His glory is far beyond the sun, it says in Revelation. You see, we will either go to the glory of deficient people who can never satisfy us, or we will look to the God of this universe who has glory beyond comprehension. We can see his glory in creation. We hear of his glory in his word. We can taste it in the gospel. We taste it in the gospel, primarily in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. You want to see the peak of God's glory? Look at the gospel. Look at Jesus. You see, through Jesus, God restores us to know the glory that we lost in the fall. In Jesus, we have approval and acceptance that lasts. He's the one who had all the glory that there is, but he emptied himself of it. He laid it aside so that he could take on dirty flesh and stand in our place for our sins hanging on a cross. He was treated like an enemy so that we could be sons and daughters. He was rejected, cast out, so that we could be welcomed and accepted and invited in and adopted. The peak of God's glory is in the gospel. And this is ours by faith. You see, God esteem, true God esteem, leads to a self-esteem that doesn't fade. That because of Jesus, we could actually stand in front of the God of the universe and have him say to us, I accept you. I approve you. I justify you. I commend you. What I said about my son, Jesus, this is my beloved son of who I am well pleased, can actually be said about you. Through faith in him, that can be spoken over you. You see, that glimpse of glory is what we need. That glimpse of glory, that's what we long for. That's what was lost in the fall. That's what we're trying to recapture through the fear of man. But we need to turn to Jesus for, and it's only ours in Jesus. And when that settles into you, when the glory of God over the glory of people, when that settles into you, it changes you. It changes you. It frees you. It liberates you. It liberates you. I love this quote from John Piper, a pastor in, former pastor in Minneapolis. He says... <clears throat> 
We are all starved for the glory of God, not self. All of us, we are all starved for the glory of God, not self. No one goes to the Grand Canyon to increase self esteem. <laughs> Why do we go? <clears throat> Because there is greater healing for the soul in beholding splendor than there is in beholding self. Indeed, what could be more ludicrous in a vast and glorious universe like this than a human being on this speck called earth standing in front of a mirror trying to find significance in his own self-image? Ludicrous. See, we are made to behold the glory of another. Focus on ourselves, focus on others, focus on creatures, and then what will happen is your word will turn your world will turn inward. It grows smaller and duller and isolated. But if you focus on the glorious creator, then your world opens up to endless God-glorifying wonders in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have a truer perspective. And see, that's what we all need. We all need to see, to know, to enjoy the truly glorious one. Where do we turn when we feel empty? Where do we turn when we are broken in our sin, when the approval of others just doesn't satisfy and our soul is left just yearning for more? Where do we turn? We turn to God the glorious one. We esteem him. He's the one that never fades. The glory of man fades. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God, that's what stands forever. And because God is glorious, because God is glorious, you don't have to fear others. You don't have to seek their approval. That's good news for us this morning, right? Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. If you would like to learn more about King's Cross Church or make a donation, please visit kx.church. Here at King's Cross, we believe that worship means more than just listening to a sermon, and we encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. For Sunday morning meeting time and location for King's Cross Church, please visit kx.church. Thanks again for listening.